when I heard it in a store or was it Pack and Save? I think it was Pack and Save. I thought, well, I've got to play this. Nobody Else was a big song in 1988, very big. We were all humming it, weren't we? By the New Zealand brothers Tex Pistol, that's Ian Morris and Ricky Morris. Uh, It was the follow-up single to Tex Pistol's cover of Wayne Fontana's The Game of Love. So this was number one, but it was such a huge track, wasn't it? Isn't it we get to that age when the, our best music is being played in the supermarket when we're going around? I used to love that song. Now it's in the supermarket. Uh, it's, it was everywhere, wasn't it? Sally Winley, it was everywhere. Yes, yes, it was. And, and rightfully long so. May it continue to be yeah. played in my supermarket. Uh, you're on the panel on RNZ National. Uh, in front of me, I've got a wonderful picture. Can you see that? Can you see the James? I can. You might not be able to see it, Sally. You're in, uh, on Zoom. But uh, in front of me is a delightful, a delightful, delightful um, little teddy. Um, and um, we got an email by one Chris. Um, we talked about uh, the toy that you still have or you still have fond memories of. With us on the line is Chris. Kia ora, Chris. Kia ora, how are you? I'm very well. Uh, you, we've got a wonderful picture of obviously something that means something very, very special to you, uh, at, even at the age of 63. What is it? Well, um, James is talking about the repair shop and uh, people having their toys repaired. And I just thought, hmm, sitting on my piano, I've got a, a little teddy that um, mum bought when I was born. Uh, just on close to 63 years ago now, and I just thought, oh, I'll drop you a photo of Teddy. I don't plan to have him repaired at all. He's in his original 63-year condition, but um, he's, he's still with us. And I've had children and grandchildren of my own and bought them Teddies, and, um, you know, I guess it's just kind of a tradition that we've kept going. Chris, please tell us his name. What is the Teddy's name? He's just Teddy. Just Teddy. Yeah. And I've got to say, he looks in great nick for 63. Yeah, well, he's got uh, one ear slightly disappeared, but the other one's still hanging on there. Um, you'll notice that uh, one eye is slightly bigger than the other. That's right. Because when I was very tiny, I used to um, bang him on the piano keys mm-hmm. to help me play the piano, and one of them split <laughs> in half. So mum had to uh, to get a, a replacement eye. So, you know, it's a little bit bigger than the other, but... And all the fur's fallen off, but apart from that, um, he's still he's still all there. I'm loving this, Chris. You're 63. You still have your teddy close by. Can I ask you a question uh, and a favour? Do you mind, because people want to know what it looks like, do you mind if we put that picture on our website? No, I don't mind at all. Love it. Chris, no. thank you for your time. Kia ora. All right, so that's Chris there. Um, he is going to be, well, that's the Teddy. He's had yes. it for 63 years, and that'll be on the website rnz.co.nz forward slash the panel. Go and have a look at it. Uh, you're on the panel, and wonderful to have your feedback and your company. This has been big news, hasn't it? Twitter users might have noticed something different about, speaking of RNZ, the RNZ account of the last 24 hours. Uh, the social media platform, has decided to add the label government 
funded media, which sits both in the page's bio and above every tweet it makes, reports RNZ's Kirsty Frame. The issue, oh, it's ignited internationally, where public media organisations like the ABC, CBC, BBC are considering their relationship with Twitter. Now, RNZ is funded by the government through NZ On Air, which injects $48 million annually. US outlets, public broadcast, or PBS, and NPR, they both left Twitter, and RNZ reached out to Twitter's general media email account to receive a poo emoji auto-reply. With us is Dr. Peter Thompson. He lectures on media studies at Victoria University, also involved with the Better Public Media Trust. Dr. Thompson, kia ora. Oh, Kira Wallace. It's hit headlines around the world. They're grappling with this, aren't they? Give us an explain for those who are new to the issue, Peter. Well, of course, Elon Musk bought Twitter for something like $44 billion at a time when it was losing $4 million a day. He uh, calls himself the cheap twit, uh, says he's probably sacked more, mostly, well, three, half to three quarters of the, of the workforce, and he's just appointed his dog as the CEO. I think the last person to do that was Caligula when he made his, uh, his horse a general. Um, but but the, the decision to start labelling uh, government-owned or government-funded media uh, in this way, I think, is quite problematic because it seems to suggest that there's an automatic reason to be cautious about political influence. And, and, and that's failing, in my view, to differentiate adequately between public service media and state-controlled media. And they're very, very different things. Is it, at the end of the day, is it really that much of a deal-breaker if Twitter labels the likes of ABC, CBC, BBC, NPR, RNZ, <laughs> government-funded media? Does it change things that much? Well, technically, you could say it's accurate, at least in the case of RNZ. Which That's right. Government so what's the issue? Well, I think the issue is that it, it, it's, it seems to be a cautionary sign that you can't actually trust this medium. Uh, now, if, if, if Elon Musk was actually interested in transparency, then for consistency's sake, he ought to be labelling other news media as commercially funded or even owned by right-wing media moguls in the case of uh, media like Fox. But he's not doing that. He's singling out state media or public service media without differentiating between the two. And uh, and as I say, they're very, very different things. Public service media operate at arm's length to the government. They're independent. We might still say that they're not perfect or that in various ways all news media are biased in some some respect. But they're clearly not the same sort of creature as the sort of state media we see, for example, in China or Russia. Okay, now this is from the Twitter guidelines, quoting, government-funded media is defined as outlets where the government provides some or all of the outlet's funding and may have varying degrees of government involvement over editorial content. So that's uh, from their Twitter site. Sally Wenley, let's bring you in. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, and um, obviously with some TV channels like in Russia and some in China and Iran, it, it is known as propaganda. Um, do you think that people could interpret that as propaganda as far as Radio New Zealand goes? Why is it such a big deal, and how much notice do you think people are really going to take of it? 
Well, in in my view, I don't think many people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, would take very much notice of it because RNZ is a known quantity. I think the issue becomes more serious, though, when we're looking at uh, you know a, a, a period of significant disinformation uh, in on the online environment, and where people share all kinds of news in social media, where the provenance of of that material is is uncertain or unknown. And insofar as we actually have a crisis of confidence in the news media, I think it's really unhelpful, you know, to, to actually have a mogul like Elon Musk labelling state media as problematic when often they're the most reliable news source available. Okay. And do you think saying something like publicly funded would be acceptable for Radio New Zealand? Well, I, th- I think it would. It's not inaccurate. But my question is, if you're concerned about the ownership or the funding source, why not also label commercial media as commercial funded or funded by advertisers or for those media owned by people like Rupert Murdoch, owned by right-wing media mogul? <laughs> you know, you know, if, if you want yeah. transparency yeah. and accuracy about the provenance of news, that would be consistent. Right, OK. Interesting point yeah. there, Peter. Uh, James. Think, no, let's go you... to James oh. now. Let's go to James. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kudos, kudos, Peter, on the reference to Emperor Caligula. Always like a classical <laughs> Roman reference put in there. But I, I, I agree with you on the commercial. Why not say the commercial side? And then who are these the biggest advertisers uh, that are providing funding to certain outlets? As you say, transparency for all or transparency for just for some? Mm, I agree completely. I also I say, mean, and, and that's one of, one of the things that actually we don't have a great deal of clarity of in the current media environment. You know, who's actually providing the funding for some of these outlets? And if we, if we start applying that to the wider social media sphere and we go into a, a, areas of the alt-right, for example, you know, who, who's behind QAnon? You know, who, who's, who's behind right. Infowars? Let's, let's, you know, if you want transparency, sure, let's go there. Well, speaking of transparency, I want to know this. Mission. I want to know this, Peter. So um, he's, uh, apparently he's anti-subsidy, Elon Musk. Um, the issue is as well that Musk's companies... Uh, Starlink and Tesla, uh, they received $4.9 billion in government handouts as of 2015. That's according to a report published that year by the LA Times, much of which came in the form of government handouts. Um, more, the huge contract awarded uh, to Starlink last year, government subsidy. Um, so he doesn't label his own company benefiting of subsidies. No, well, I, th- I think there's a certain degree of corporate hypocrisy there. And, of course, they're separate companies. And, and, and sending satellites into orbit or, uh, or making electric motor vehicles is a rather different game from producing information and providing a platform through which other people can share information. I mean, the, the, you know, obviously there are, there are different hazards attached to those companies. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, is, is that hypocritical? Well, in an ideological sense, probably yes. Um, but I, go, I come back to this concern about what his real motive is here. Because if he's really concerned about transparency and openness and free speech, then let's be consistent about that. But I actually suspect that this is buying into a broadly right-wing agenda that, that looks at all forms of, of publicly funded media as somehow left-wing, okay. you know, the myths about red radio and all the rest of it. Did you want to sneak uh, in a quick comment, Sally? Yes, if Radio New Zealand did pull out of Twitter, uh, would that be a problem, do you think, 
for the company? I don't think the organisation should I say. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it would be a terrible problem. I don't think they'd lose many, you know, many users through through not having uh, Twitter, you know, not having their accounts on Twitter. It's very interesting to note that actually a majority of engagements with RNZ, uh, you know, media content now occurs off their own platforms, though. So I don't, I don't think Twitter would be big for that. That would be partly their news sharing model. It would also be their content being shared on YouTube and other other platforms. So I don't think there'd be a terrible impact on RNZ if they did pull out of Twitter. Maybe they should. Very good, Peter Thompson. That's a media commentator uh, involved with the Better Public Media Trust uh, studies, media studies at Vic Union. It's 14 away from five. Now the Greens have launched an internal review into MP Elizabeth Ketiketi's conduct. She's been accused of on, ongoing poor behaviour with comments like, quote, unquote, OMG, what a crybaby. Ketiketi complaining that Chloe Swarbrick's members' bills was being debated. Not the only party dealing with member behaviour. National Stephen Jack shared a crass post about women. So how do you deal with poor behaviour by elected members? What if a party just can't get along. We thought we'd get former Green MP Sue Kesley and sometime panellists to join and to discuss this. Kia ora, Sue. Kia ora, Wallace and James and Sally. Yes, so it uh, ran pretty big this morning on Morning Report. I wanted to touch on it. You know, some pretty big personalities end up in politics. So how important is it for a party to get along? Unbelievably important. Uh, The public expects... MPs to work as a team, to focus on achieving their political goals. They hate infighting, conflict, backbiting and undermining each other, whether it's the Wellington City Council, the Green Party or the National Party. So it's incredibly damaging, especially, of course, uh, heading into uh, election year. Yeah, Sally. But, so do you think it's possible for everybody to get on well, as opposed to just working together constructively? Well, ironically, the Green Party's always prided themselves on having an incredibly supportive political culture. In fact, I can remember uh, the um, Chris Carter saying that the Greens had the nicest and most supportive political culture. Oh, so you're just going to you're going to have to sort of turn your head and move a metre to the left <laughs> or right there because you're phasing oh, away you and you're yeah, saying something really can interesting. Morris, uh, can you hear me now? Beautifully. Well, Chris Carter uh, said that uh, the Greens had the nicest, most supportive political culture. And indeed, for my 12 years in Parliament, we had an incredibly supportive culture uh, in the Green Party. So this is very, very damaging because what is obvious is that factions have uh, started to emerge and the culture of trust, which is so essential, has broken down. Okay. That we have some MPs more focused on themselves rather than um, on being part of a team and achieving their goals. So it is very damaging coming particularly to the Green Party which has always prided itself on having a really supportive political culture. Okay, so not a good development then. Uh, Just uh, while we're getting James and just uh, turn yourself another 180 degrees, (laughs) so so, it's a bit clearer. It's just... 
It's just cell phones. Very sorry about that, Wallace. No, no, you're a bit of there, James. Well, let's draw a distinction first between the Green Party issues and Stephen Jack's crass joke. They're completely different scenarios. The crass joke is, I think crass is the politest way you've described it, and just, just beyond the pale and disqualifying. But in terms of being able to get on, so I can bring a perspective from having worked at a number of law firms over the years, you don't have to get on with people <laughs> in order to work with them effectively. It's a nice to have, it's not a must. Yeah, but not a, law a, firm, a law firm is not a political party that needs to earn the public yeah. st- vote, voting public's not trust. Not necessarily, but they, they're certainly full of big, talk about sure. working effectively. Are they full of big personalities? Uh, yes, they are. Do they still have to work effectively? Yes, they do. But I think also, as Sue's pointed out, we, there's this expectation built up that the Greens would have the highest standards of support yeah. and collegiality and those things as well. And political parties, they rise and fall by whether or not they work as a team. I mean, when you get, think, think Dr. Sharma, you know, think Jamie Lee Roth. I mean, these sort of, uh, you know, when an MP, uh, you know, undermines other MPs, it, it's just unbelievably damaging to a political party's reputation because public hates it, and particularly so uh, in an election year. But it's hard to know what to do about it, because uh. obviously the Green Party will want to keep a lid on this. They'll want to keep the whole thing as an internal incident. But when you have uh, five staff members and former staff members leaking, it's hard to see how that can happen. Oddly enough, the Green Party is the only party in Parliament which has members actually vote to decide on the list. So what the Green Party will be hoping is that they can keep a lid on it and leave it up to members to vote for the list and see where they put Elizabeth Kerry-Kerry. But I wonder whether it's almost got too uh, damaging and whether they will be able to keep the lid on it any longer. Interesting uh, insight, Sue. Thanks for that. That's Sue Kedgley there, uh, former Green MP, saying that it's pretty damaging that uh, for the public uh, confidence to see a party like this um, sort of uh, fraying a little bit, I guess, particularly in election year. Huh? It's 8 to 5. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Nice to have your uh, company. We have Sally Wenley, who's a freelance journalist, and James Elliott, who is a lawyer a consultant columnist at Newsroom who's an English language teacher as well. And yesterday on... Oh, interesting text here. Robin says, Kia ora Wallace, a wise manager said, I had many years ago, said, you don't have to like your colleagues, but you do have to respect them. Yeah, absolutely. On the programme yesterday, size-inclusive stylist Mo Doy joined us, talking about the lack of size diversity in New Zealand-made shoes. Well, the texts, they came in. Many of you with the problem that Mo has. Boots that go above the ankle, not fitting. Also wide feet, different size feet, high insteps. Sounds like a lot of you are struggling with the issue. And we had Louise Ailing who messaged in saying, hey, I'm a shoemaker who specialises in this work. Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you, Willis. Tell me, tell me about your job. Um, well, primarily I'm a shoemaker. I uh, trained in the UK for many years. I've been in the trade about 23 years, and I oh. worked as a bespoke shoemaker in the UK. But in New Zealand, I have my own little shoemaking business, and I do a lot of specialist um, repair work, and spe- specific, specifically, sorry, that's a hard word, 
Um, the um, alterations of long boots. Okay, so what Mo was saying yesterday really resonated with you. Oh, absolutely. It's my job. (laughs) What are common reasons people come to you for alterations in shoes? The sort of common thread I find is that people come in with legs that they are either, you know, too small to fit into a boot or too large to fit into a boot, and you're dealing with the same vulnerable issue, and people just want to feel good about what they can wear. And boots are challenging. You know, five years ago, we hit the um, short boot phase. It sort of eradicated this problem, but now long boots are back in fashion. And so my job is to explain to the customer what I can do, and with my experience as a shoe as a shoemaker, I'm able to completely strip the boots apart and rebuild the leg, putting the panels in the right places and wow. leather gussets, putting the right curves back in. So the boot looks like it's supposed to belong on their leg, and when that happens, that's the magic moment. It's just so satisfying for both the customer oh. and myself. Chills are going down my spine. I can almost <laughs> I can feel the customer's happiness, Sally. Yes. Yeah. What about the um, cost of it? Because I sort of think, in some cases, well, would the would it be worth getting it changed? Are these sort of high brow leather Italian boots you're talking about, or across the board? Uh, it's a mixture because you know some boots are not well made and when you pull them apart you see that but if that's explained to the customer and they really love these boots they will pay you know 100 200 300 for the alterations because they then belong on their legs now with a, a boot that's made say in italy that is made with high quality leathers the alteration is much more satisfying because you can really make it look like it belongs as an alteration you would never know it had been done because you can match the the seam treatments and the leathers um and of course, if somebody's paying, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars for a pair of boots, the, with using leathers to match uh, the existing materials, you, you, the boot will age at the same time. It won't, you know, the, the alteration won't disintegrate, um, you know, pr- uh, before the boot upper does. So it's it's like where do you put your money? It's the long term yeah. value and satisfaction that customers get out of this process and skill. It's amazing, isn't it, James? Well, uh, yeah. Wallace is very much looking forward to having his long boots personally fitted. <laughs> but Louise, my question is: Is it true that yeah. people's um, foot size differs from foot to foot? And if so, can yeah. you cater for that? Uh, you, in terms of shoemaking, obviously, um, because you're making as a bespoke shoemaker, you make to fit the. Foot, what the feet are doing. Um, in terms of ready wear, obviously people are always wise to buy a size that's slightly, but that is fitting the larger foot, never the smaller foot. Um, there can be things you can do with added padding, sole, insole treatments that can create sort of a similar, uh, tighter fit, uh, you know, to the foot that's say smaller. Um, you always work to the larger foot for making sure things are fitting correctly. Um, so it's sort of, it, it's sort of, you know, um, until you see the customer, you don't always know. But there's always possibilities. There's always something that can be done in some capacity. So it's just a matter of working out what's the best strategy for people's feet and the shoes that they want to wear. Just amazing! What an amazing skill, Louise! It's quite something. Do you enjoy yes, it? Do you enjoy it? Yes, yes. It's it's a problem solving task, you know, job sometimes. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's very satisfying when customers have come in and you do 
alter their options and you give them possibilities and hope, whether that's, you know, on an alteration level, you know, from a high-end alteration level or as a shoemaker, um, you know, both those um, uh, sort of situations, you can get a lot of achievement in your own self. Louise Ayling, kia ora. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you. Very good. And I've got to say, Sally Wheatley, on a final note, uh, the pictures you sent through of your coronation pieces, I have to say, beautiful. Oh, thank you. And um, I do still want to be very arrogant and, and go to the coronation <laughs> once. Put, and I'll I'd like you, you to come with me. I'll, I'll, I'll the put panel of coronation. <laughs> but wouldn't it be great? And I've been thinking by Charles and Camilla. Sally <laughs> Whitney, James Elliott, thank you for your time this afternoon. I'm Wallace Chapman. Back tomorrow, 3.45, Checkpoint with Lisa Owen next.